0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On Air.
1: Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one, and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, ooh, look, have you read this, or have you seen that, and we know you need this, with its cruelly-situated right-at-the-front-so-you-trip-over-at-New-Zealand-New-Releases table, and worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in book lovers' Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Join us for the next hour as we delve into that wonderful world of books. Now my first guest Sue Wharton is a poet and fiction writer and I've had the great pleasure of interviewing her in the past on the release of her poetry collections and novels but today I'm chatting with Sue about her role as publisher at Otago University Press. Sue welcome back to the show. Kia ora, Venda, thank you for having me. Now, that's a really interesting career pathway um, going for into the publishing world, you know, from uh, a poet and a novelist and an author and then suddenly, you know, into publishing. Was that something that you had always
2: aspired to? I don't, not – not. well, I've always wanted to work in publishing, I, but I never really saw it as a career I, I, – it's even more of a weird path because actually – I trained as a physiotherapist first of all, and spent twenty years in that with that career and vocation. So, this, but but all the time I had wanted to be involved. I I love books, so I've always been a reader, and I had always been a dabbling writer, and uh, and then so it's been a long meandering journey, is the answer to your question. (laughs) Um, However, by the time this job um when rachel scott retired about um it's nearly two years ago um so she had been the uh, stalwart publisher at otago university press for the previous uh, around seven or eight years and um it was fortuitous timing for me because i had just finished uh, a load of study and um and i was casting around for full-time work and i have a background in as you as you will know as a as a writer, we're always looking for ways to fill that portfolio of earning um, <laughs> in the, all the earning portfolio Aren't so lots just of you know editing jobs and things like that <laughs> and reading manuscripts and so on so I had a little bit of a hat a little bit of a hat on the, on that side of the the fence if you like and um yeah, I applied I was lucky enough to to get the position and uh, and it's, it's a wonderful job. Yeah, mm. And I thought, you know, when it came up
1: that you were the new publisher, I was like, yes, because to me, with your background, as you say, in health and science, with your mm. physiotherapy background, and also the arts and that lovely intersection, that just fits so well mm. with this publishing portfolio. So, you no know, how has that, you know, being on the other side, on the seeking publication, actually informed you when it comes to your role as a publisher?
2: I'm super, I think the third primary thing is that I'm super aware of what it costs an author to make a pitch to a publisher in terms of um, the work that's gone into the manuscript, the hopes and dreams of the author. I, I, um, I'm always super aware of that. It's um, and now and and I'm also have become m- even more keenly aware of the fact that you're always told when you're a writer that it's extremely competitive out there. Um, you have to make your best pitch. Um, your work should be as good as you're going to get it, or your proposal as um, detailed as you can make it. Before you approach a publisher, I now realise just how important that is. The volume of work that we receive in terms of submissions is huge, and the number of spaces we have to publish things very small. We curate our curate a list that needs to cover um, a variety of genres. Although we only publish non-fiction, and our literature is usually poetry, we also publish Landfall, two two issues of Landfall, which is New Zealand's longest-running, most prestigious literary journal. Um, We've just published the 244th edition of that. It's an amazing um, legacy that we look after. The current editor is Lynne Edmeads. So there's that, Landfall, some some poetry, about five collections a year, and the rest of the list is non-fiction, which again has to cover the gamut of of, uh, genres within... The non-fiction uh, prose genre it can be science like the magnificent um, treasures of fold and Ma books that we published last year with daphne lee and john Conran and uve Kuvas um, or it can be um a memoir like or, or um a essay sort of extended essay like uh, sarah jane barnett's notes on womanhood which came out last year so there's a lot of different factors that go into creating the list that's the thing I've become uh, yeah it's hard to convey this to authors and I've been on the other side of the fence so I know what it's like to to get that letter that says I'm sorry but we don't have room for your manuscript and now I understand (laughs) I would love to be able to publish so many more things than we do but yeah, I guess that's the, That's the <laughs> that's thing. That's the reality. That's of the reality. It. Yeah.
1: Mm. So there are um, a number of university presses in New Zealand who put out an mm-hmm. extraordinary body of work. Uh, what is special about you know, a university press compared to, say, perhaps you know um, what we think of as your commercial large publishers?
3: Um,
2: I think it's in the nature of the. We we tend to occupy a niche for work that might not be. I mean, we're always looking for commercial, vi- commercially viable work. Of course, we are, but we are able to publish books that are not necessarily that are not going to be on a commercial trade publisher's list. Um, uh, so we can look at specialist work. We can look at um, work like the Mar, the book about Mar, um, and we can. Produce a volume that is um, is referenced and um, full of citations. Very, tr- our, our work is um, peer reviewed, um, so nothing gets through our um, our acquisitions process without facts being checked and um, and s- s- appropriate citations and things like that. So it's very. Um, Uh, traditional in that way and and, um, I love that. I think that we we stand behind all our books um, knowing that everything has been through so many different eyes from a a if if someone is publishing on a specialist topic then we have other people reviewing that work before it goes to print. Um, We also make I should say too that we don't actually publish textbooks or anything like that. That used to be a role of university presses. We tend to try now to be in, in the role of um, communication science communication technology communication communication about cultural ideas about history so we want our books to be very readable as well as thoroughly researched and well informed which is good because um, you,
1: you, you were talking before about the citations and I was going to say you know which makes it sound very academic but mm. most of the publications that I've read are actually just yeah. very readable like you say and entertaining that's right, that's, and I informative that is, yeah that's mm. right
2: and that's something that um a, a goal for us that that people because there are a lot of people who there are people in our um, community in Aotearoa Dunedin who know enormous amount of we publish people authors from all over the world I should say but we we have a um, um, an emphasis on uh, Aotearoa New Zealand and the Pacific and um, and of course we love it when our authors are local people that makes life even more pleasurable to be dealing with authors <laughs> who are, who are local yeah. but you know people we do deal with so many people who know a lot about a specific area and so part of our role is to make sure that they get the appropriate editorial support so that the the work is readable so that you want to pick it up and keep reading that book mm. Mm. Which and is fun.
1: also that means you know, some people might imagine being a university press. only publish people who work at the university. No, that's right.
2: Some people mm. do think that, but that's not true. We, mm. we um, take submissions from anybody, so it's just and, a matter of the, if the yeah. work. If the work fits, we, yeah. we, we take them.
1: So, what would you would you say is um, a target University Presses like point of difference from the other university presses
2: or publish you know publishers out there? We. Uh, we we do have our emphasis is on Maori um, Pacifica New Zealand history and and we focus a lot on on those on, so histories and, and sciences that pertain to um, to to us as a people. We're really interested in the cultural aspect of who we are as a nation and a people how we have evolved as a nation and a people and where we are going so I think we that's one point of difference and, and the other is that and of course we will grab anything within a Taga or Te Waipa mm-hmm. focus, that's um, something else that we've positioned in the south we are the major publisher in the south island and so that is also something that we um, try to to represent the south um we also publish um p- poetry is a um a, the other Auckland and uh te, te, uh thwap, um the old Victoria University Press um also publish poetry uh, but we also take pride in our poetry list as mm-hmm. well and um so those those things and landfall that's a, a, a an, also another point of difference for us that, that we have the custodianship of this prestigious journal which was um, launched by Charles Brash post-war and is still going and, and in which um, many major New, Z- uh, New Zealand authors have been published over that time um, and sometimes with their first, first place of publication for a story or a poem or an essay and we are you know, very proud of that Yeah, it's a great legacy to to have.
1: And that shows the great value of that publication because it it has been um, like a starting point for so many amazing writers.
2: Yeah, and it is still a... um a go to um, if you're looking for if, if anyone's interested in an, an author's past, um, they'll often go back to the Landfall archives and um, find the, that first story or that that first poem or that first batch of work. It's mm. an exciting thing to 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 see it in its first form, and you know it, it's a reminder too that everyone starts somewhere. Mm. Um, but Landfall Publishers. Still publishing work by new writers, emerging writers. Um, Every issue, um, Lindley, who's uh, Lindley Edmead's the selecting editor, will find work by people that have never published before. It's very exciting. I mean, um, you and I will both know how exciting it is to get that first acceptance (laughs) note. (laughs) But we're also publishing. Lindley's also um, selecting work from well-established authors Mm -hmm. as well. So it's a lovely anthology of. the, the nov, novice or emerging writers and established writers with a really long and prestigious track record. Um, does it still have a great readership? It does. It does mm-hmm. have a great readership. And we run um, we run two competitions through Landfall every year. And this is an excellent opportunity for me to yeah. actually uh, say that the Charles Brash Young Writers Essay Competition is open for submissions at the moment. Yeah. And um, that's for secondary school... Our, not just secondary schools, up to age 21. Um, I think I'm right in saying 21. Um, <laughs> and it, it's an essay competition mm. for young writers, and um, the winner receives uh, they public, get published in their journal and receive a, a cash prize. So it's a, a really it's open nationwide, mm. um, and the details about it are on our website oup.nz. Excellent. No, um, it's a very very special publication and I love also that it's you know it's not just literature. You know, um, there's the arts in there as well. Yeah, and, that's right. That's and right. It's we do very visual arts visual as well. Art. Two, two um, mm. art portfolios per volume. Uh, the other competition that we run is the Land for Essay competition. Mm. That's um, and that will be open for submissions later in the year. And that uh, the winning essay from that is always published in the the November issue of mm. the of the journal. Yeah. Also you know, w- very competitive. Um, yes. Last year the winner was Tina Makariti and um, with a fantastic um, essay which um, really moved uh, a lot of people when they read it about her journey with with breast cancer. Mm. Yeah, it was a fabulous essay. I love the essay as it's a, it's a form. It's, it's yeah, wonderful. The essays of, uh, there's another thing actually, that you ask about point of difference, that we, we do, because of these essay competitions that we... Um, we manage through Landfall. We, as a press, are very interested in the essay form, and we also publish uh, an anthology of the best of the Landfall essays, the entries and mm. um, commended and winning entries in every year's competition. Um, so we're up to the third anthology of that, which will come out later this year, which will include um, the winning entry, the winning essays from. Uh, last year and the year before, plus uh, a compilation of the best of the entries—a stunning little anthology. So yeah. it's, it's called Strong Words. Yeah. yeah, Strong Words Three. It will be. I've purchased mm-hmm. everyone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they're good, aren't they? They're great. They're wonderful. Um, great to have
2: on your bedside table, and um, they really open the world. They do. Yeah.
1: yeah. So you said you know you have um, non-fiction as your specialty, and also poetry. Um, was there any particular reason why um, Target University Press didn't publish fiction? It's a
2: resources thing. Mm. We are a small team, and we uh, we stick we stick to our knitting. Um, if we if we opened up into fiction beyond the short fiction that is published in Landfall and beyond certain um, uh, t- vintage titles, you could say like Dan Davin, that um, mm. the, the Otago University Press um, have reissued um, volumes of short stories by some of the the um, uh, a few select um New Zealand authors, but on we don't publish novels and we don't publish collections of short stories. it's it is largely to do with our mm. we are overloaded with um, submissions as we are, and we are a small team, so mm. we would be stretched too thin and we just have to keep it tight. <laughs> <laughs> so when yeah. you say
1: overloaded with submissions, um no. How many would you get in a, in a month?
2: It varies a bit, but mm. we would get. I mean, mm. any, on average, we would be. Mm. It, it does. It depends, but mm. we get hundreds yep. in, in, in a year, hundreds of submissions. Mm. So it goes up and down with every um, submission due date, mm. but we uh, we just get. Loads of non-fiction ideas, and manuscripts and proposals and and you know ten or fifteen manuscripts of poetry and each submission period, and then it's a matter of filtering through which ones might fit our list and which ones are strong enough to take to our editorial board mm. for the ones that are, have potential to fit our list um, or go through to the editorial board for assessment. I don't envy you the task of filtering through you must yeah. see some amazing submissions Oh, sometimes it's um, heartbreaking for me because I, mm. you know, I often know no authors um, involved uh, uh, personally and can't um, and just know that we're not going to have a space for the, the idea or the proposal and um, yeah that is, can be quite hard there's it's a lot of reading involved and um, we always try hard to make sure that we can fit something in mm. somewhere Mm. Uh, and of course it's great when you can. It's yes. great when you do. When you get something that you just think, "Oh, this is delightful." When we haven't, we haven't got anything on this topic, mm. um, or this extends our genre in some way. Um, yeah, that, that's always very exciting. And what, um, well,
1: what exciting books have you got coming out, oh. um, or, or you know, recent arrivals that?
2: Um, well, we, the, the next launch of the rank is a poetry collection by James Norcliffe. And James has just been recently announced at the end of last year as the recipient of the Prime Minister's Award um, for a Literary Achievement in Poetry. So we're very proud to be launching his letter to Oamuamua, which uh, we'll be launching in February in Christchurch at Scorpio Books. Um, a, a fantastic. Collection as you'd expect from James. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a, a book called um, Much More Serious. Uh, well, actually, James's work is he's got a very dry wit, James Norcliffe. Um, very, um, so a lot of his work is quite, his poetry is quite funny, but it's also got very serious undertones about the way we live in the world. Um, as does this other book that I'm going to talk about, Histories of Hate. Um, mm. The Radical Right in Aotearoa New Zealand, which is a collection of of essays about the rise of, or about the history of um, radical right ideologies um, in Aotearoa New Zealand, um, is a obviously very timely uh, collection with mm. a lot of important um, important information and just uh, and um, it will enhance discussions mm. on on um, some of these issues. I think, and that's um, yeah. the value of being able to
1: publish things like that, but it might not normally be published. At a, you know, it's then there mm. for the record, for the historical record. Yeah, it's for record, like everything. It's a historical
2: mm. record, and it's um, again, it's as well. We know it's well researched. We it's been peer reviewed. We know that um, there's no. Um, Nothing in there that we, we we wouldn't stand you know it's a reliable text mm. it's a really reliable book anyone will be able to pick it up and read it and trust that information um, and it's also of course um, uh, it's really it's important it's a really important mm. book on our agenda this year um we're also publishing David Eggleton's poet laureate collection very soon as well yes. in March.
3: <laughs> really <Respirating.
2: laughs> <That'll be> fun, <laughs> yeah. So, and, he, and that is a really interesting collection because it um, it marks it's a mark of his tenure as the New Zealand poet laureate, and his tenure took was over the COVID period. Mm. So, he's writing in response to significant events in New Zealand history, and he's writing poems in the moment in response to how we lived and live now in response to this this pandemic. Um, so it's a really, um, it's a wonderful collection, a beautiful book, and, and it will be, again, in its own way, a real uh, record and witness, a testimony to recent events. What else? We've got some more. Oh, we've got another book on... Um, coming out in April called Aftermaths which is about um, the legacy of colonial violence in Aotearoa New Zealand Um, another major book really with lots to say about how we um, remember the past or misremember the past and how this the legacy of what the stories we tell about the history have a real impact on lives today so yeah. And, and that one
1: spreads into the Pacific as
2: well as to Australia, does. doesn't it? Does. it? So Australia it's got quite a Pacific. broad mm-hmm. spectrum yeah, New Zealand, Australia and the Pacific. Yeah, it's great. And it's illustrated. Um, so I think that one will be uh, really, both those books, Histories of Hate and Aftermaths, are going to be um, incredibly good books for... Um, well anyone interested in mm. politics and culture but yeah. also for schools and tertiary institutes and um, students who are actually studying in that area as well yeah but broad reach but one that um, I'm really excited about <laughs> is as well is um, it's the anniversary is the hundredth anniversary of Catherine Mansfield's death this year yes and we're publishing a book by Redma Yeska in um, the, uh, soon and well, it will be soon. It'll be uh, it'll come around fast um, in May. Called Catherine Mansfield's Europe, station to station, and um, in this book, Redma follows Catherine Mansfield's the traces of her journey and mm. um, in in, through Europe mainly in her her last especially in her last two years of her life and um, it's a really wonderful read it just crackles with energy mm-hmm. he meets people along the way um, so it have got his journey and in, in the in the in the in the Present time, um, and the people he meets along the way, who, who are Catherine Mansfield, F affin- and affin- how do you say that word you aficionados, know? aficionados. <laughs> and, and they uh, in, in uh, France, in Germany, and um, Italy, who who take him under their wing, um, this New Zealander from from Wellington, and sh- um, show him the local monuments and explain how she is remembered in these places. So he's visiting the the hotels that she wrote in and stayed in and finding the rooms and this magn- is just beautifully illustrated. It sounds fun because I was looking at that and I was thinking oh you know what what what
1: new and fresh things
2: can, ah, she's been written about so much. I know you'd think so but mm. no he's he's winkled out all sorts of little mm. details and um, it, it is, it's just a book that just crackles with, with, um, with this energy. Um, it's lovely. It's like a little detective story almost. Um, as, he, as he hunts down where she actually walked, where she slept, which room she wrote mm-hmm. in, and what was in her medicine, and why did she have these terrible, um, some of her terrible experiences, what, what was the background to that, and yeah. what was going on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really fascinating, very moving but also funny as well in parts. Yeah. Oh, so that sounds book. wonderful. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Sue, for coming on today
1: and um, talking about books and Chicago um, University Press and, and that lovely transition from being writer to publisher. And we um, wish you all the best. And I, I look forward to reading some of these uh, these new books coming out. Kia ora, Vinda. Thank you so much. Right, we're going to take a short music break. We'll be back soon.
3: of me sometimes when you and I collide I fall into an ocean of you Pull me up in time Don't let me drown Let me down I say it's all because of you And here I go losing my control It doesn't seem right to look you in the eye Let all the things you mean to me Go tumbling out my mouth and beat it Time to tell you why I say it's infinitely true Logic has been torn apart, and now it all turns sour. Come sweet in.
1: The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture perfect, just smell those books and breathe atmosphere. With its staff who entice me with, oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front, so you trip over at New Zealand New Releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors, and it's sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Well, I was delighted to see in the news recently that the Dunedin City Council has purchased the land around Folden Mar, which is the unique and precious fossil site. Now, last year I had a fascinating interview with Daphne Lee, who is one of the authors of Fossil Treasures of Folden Mar. So I'm playing that interview again today just to give you some insight into why that site is so significant and so desperately needed protection. Daphne Lee is an honorary associate professor at the geology department at the University of Otago and is a coordinator of the research team at Foden Ma. and she's a co-author of the recently published book Fossil Treasures at Foden Maar: A Window into Miocene Zealandia. Daphne, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, nice to be here.
1: Now as a kid and actually now, still now as an adult, um, I've always been fascinated by fossils and I know many people who are out listening um, today are as well. So I thought we'd get um, you to start actually by, you know, Folden ma. what is a ma?
0: Right, well that's the question that everybody asks and it's an unfamiliar word and I've discovered that Spell checks, always try and change it to something else. So it's M-A-A-R, and that's how it's properly spelled. So it's a kind of volcano, and they're actually very common. So if you if you go to Auckland and you look at um, lots of little round lakes, like Lake Pupuki and so on, they're Mars. So what happens is that you have um, very hot basalt and basaltic magma rising from depth and hitting a body of water possibly a lake or an aquifer or something rather and what happens is you get a very violent explosion um, on the earth's surface which um, creates a huge plume of debris that goes up maybe as far as 20 kilometers up in the air but it leaves a crater that's probably never bigger than one or maybe two kilometers in diameter, but it's very deep. So imagine a hole in the ground after this explosion that's a kilometer across and maybe two or 300 meters deep, okay? Mm. And most of the material that was blasted up (laughs) goes up, and then it comes back down and it fills in a large part of the 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 crater. But quite a lot of it also will spread around the rim of the crater. And that's really important because what happens after that is that um, the hole in the ground will fill with water and you'll end up with a lake quite rapidly um, because groundwater and rainwater and so on will fill it in. But because there's this rim of debris around the outside, you don't get streams carrying sediment in. So most lakes are very um, fairly short-lived in geological terms because Rivers and streams and creeks and so on carry sediment silt and sand and stuff and, and fill them up quickly. but a lake um, stays um, um, kind of pristine with not much sediment coming into it and so everything that accumulates on the floor of that lake is from what was living in the lake so you know fish and algae and so on or what was blown in um, because in the case of Foldenmar, um forest, Uh, the forest that was there initially 23 million years ago before the volcanic eruption um, was destroyed completely you know blasted out of existence but over time over um, thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years forest re-established and then right around the edge of the lake because it's nice fertile basaltic soil and um, leaves and flowers and fruits and so on would blow into the lake and that's what accumulated on the lake bed and um, the other thing is because the lake is small and very deep the bottom part of it is completely without oxygen we call it anoxic and so anything that gets um, sinks down to the bottom of the lake is pickled think of it as a pickling process I mean that's (laughs) the best word to describe it um so there's oxygen in the top layers and so fish and and Insects and things can exist there, but if they get down below this layer, um, they that pickled. So um, it's a, it's a kind of a peculiar situation, um, and Folden ma is one of the best examples in the Southern Hemisphere of a situation where you have a mar which has um, which hasn't been modified much. It's it's kind of still there the way the way it's been for millions of years until we started. Um, digging around with our picks and shovels and diggers and things. Mm. So, um, when did that, you know, as the site, um, clearly there's no lake there right now, you know,
1: how long ago would that lake have, have dried up?
0: Right, filled, filled up, yes. No, filled up. Mm. Point. So, the volcano um, erupted almost exactly 23 million years ago, which is kind of important um, because it's when the uh, the time. At the Oligocene Miocene boundary and the time when ice was starting to accumulate on Antarctica, and so global climate was going through a big change, and so on, the lake itself probably existed for a bit more than 130,000 years. But every year of those 130,000 years, a thin layer, like less than a um, half a millimeter thick layer of sediment, would accumulate on the bottom. So we can actually go back and look at every single one of those years um, for 130,000 years. But having said that, the lake filled up more than 22 million years ago, and it, then it got covered with younger sediments. And so it was effectively not only were things pickled in the bottom of the lake, but the lake itself has been kind of frozen in time until mm-hmm. we started um, investigating it.
1: That's a, that's a lot of layers.
0: I'm <laughs> just thinking 130,000 layers. <laughs> some of my students actually started counting them and they decided that there was too many to count so they would count like 10,000 or something and then extrapolate a bit and maybe count another 10,000 but it's just amazing it's the best climate record for its um for that time period in the southern hemisphere
1: <laughs> that's a lot more ambitious than counting tree rings <laughs>
0: It's like counting tree rings for a tree that lived for 130,000 years. And you could count every single tree ring and every layer or every ring represented what was happening in the climate at the time. So when was the site first rediscovered in modern times? Okay, well, we don't exactly know. Um, I don't think there's any record of pre-European discovery because there wouldn't have been anything to see. Um, but probably the very first people who did farming there um, saw some funny white sediment, which is the diatomite um, that f- and mostly infilled the lake. Um, because in 1875, there's a, a few sentences written about freshwater diatoms from the Strath which is the you know the old name for the Middlemarch area, and um, that was in a book uh, written about the gold fields of Otago, and so. You know, diatomite wasn't worth anything, so they weren't particularly interested, but they just noted it in passing. And then in the 19, I think 1910, somebody must have thought, hmm, let's dig a bit of this out and send it off to somebody and see if we can make some money out of it. So some bags of it were dug up and sent off to England or somewhere. We actually don't know what happened because we never heard the end of the story, um, and, and, um that was kind of the end of it again. And then in the from the 1940s onwards, um, a few truckloads um, have of, of um, the white diatomite have, were mined and used for insulation and filtration and various things. And then in the 1950s, they decided they would um, see how much there was there, um, and they might use it when they were building the Roxborough and the Waitaki um, hydroelectric dams, because the diatomite, the sediment... Um, is useful for cooling concrete, you know, when you're pouring huge pours of concrete. And so in the 1950s, there was a lot of investigation done, and they worked out how big the deposit was, you know, kilometre across and, well, Half a mile across, I guess, in those days, and they did some drilling to find out how deep it was. And again, then nothing much happened. And then in the nineteen early no, the early two thousands or late nineteen nineties, a new mining company came in and decided maybe they could make some serious money out of this. And they got diggers in and, and did some more drilling and so on, and um, took a few truck, a few more truckloads away, maybe hundreds of truckloads away. Um, and, and that was fine. And they also um, worked in with the University of Otago. So they would um, ring us up and say, right, we're going to have a digger in. We might find some interesting fossils. Would you like to bring a group of students up and have a look? And so we would go up several times a year and see what we could find. And the fossils got more and more exciting and interesting and so on. And then in, um, I think it was 2018, all of a sudden, another mining company from overseas had come in. And we discovered to our horror um from a leaked report that um, was published in the Otago Daily Times that the new mining company was going to not just mine a few truckloads, but the entire deposit, hundreds of thousands of tonnes every year for I think it was 27 years, and they were going to take it all away. It was going to be used as, uh, first of all, fertiliser for palm oil plantations in Malaysia or somewhere, which didn't go down very well with people, so they changed what they said in public and said it was going to be used as an addition to poultry and pig um, food, which didn't make sense. And so anyway, all sorts of questions started being asked and people started wondering what was going on here. And those of us who started discovering these amazing fossils got very upset about it Mm. (laughs) and said, we've got to put a stop to this. Um, and so there were petitions and protests and letters and petitions to you know the government and and um eventually, the mining company um, went they pulled out. they actually pulled the plug themselves, um possibly realizing that that public opinion and scientific opinion was very much not on their side and um they went into receivership but that's been the situation for the last three years and so we cannot go at the moment nobody can go and look for fossils there Um, the gate is locked and everybody is forbidden you know from from access is forbidden for everybody scientists and and the public alike so that's where it's been for about the last three years and we're still hoping for a positive resolution sometime (laughs) in the future
1: Yes, because that's a, um, like you said, it seems to be an extraordinarily significant site, you know, oh, as far yeah. as the, the fossil record um, and everything like that within New Zealand and um, and globally. And, and globally, yeah. Um, so, you know, what sort of fossils have been found there and, you know, what have been the most exciting discoveries?
0: Right, well, there's a bit of everything. Um, Remember, it's a freshwater freshwater lake, so the things that you would expect. So there's a lot of algae. Um, Most of the sediment is actually diatoms, um, tiny little aquatic plants. Um, And there's... Um, A lot of plant material. Most of the fossils we find are leaves that must have blown in from a surrounding forest, rainforest. Um, There's also flowers, um, there's fruits and seeds, some some bits of um, bark and so on, fungi um, on the leaves. Um, But the really exciting things are fish. There are little fish. The oldest um, whitebait fossils known from anywhere in the world come from Foldenmar, which is really exciting. And some of them are beautifully preserved. Um, so there's um, fish, there's eels, um, there's sponges I forgot to mention, Um, there's also coprolites, so um, (laughs) people don't know what coprolites mean, (laughs) bird poo. and so sooner or later we expect to find bird bones, Um, at the moment we know that they were there um, because we've got um, little droppings that contain Grains of sand that came from somewhere else. Not that they're not part of the, the um, Folden Mar Lake system. But the other really important fossils are insects. When we mm. first started working there, um, there were I think six fossil insects older than the Ice Ages known from New Zealand. Um, we've now got up to about six hundred different insects and spiders from New Zealand, and about nearly three hundred of them come from Folden Mar and they're all new to science, nobody had any idea about them being here, um, and there are some spiders, um, but the insects are incredibly diverse, so there's things, live, there's things um, scale insects attached to leaves, there's bark bugs, there's um, weevils of various kinds, there's beetles, which have still got some colour, um, I'm going to have to have a look at my thing, there's crane flies, there's ants, lots of ants, there's wasps, <laughs> caddisflies, um plant hoppers, um termites. <laughs> um, and 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 we're really only at the start of you know the start of the research. so this is what we found after um say ten years of solid research. who knows what it, what else is there, but i I would think it's a you know curve that's going to keep on going up for Probably decades, if not centuries, to come, as long as we can have access to this site,
1: um, the site. The level of preservation must be amazing. I was sort of reading it in, in the book, you know, when it's talking particularly about spiders, and because mm-hmm. they don't have like hard, tightness uh, parts, that's right. It's yes. very rare to find.
0: examples of that and there are some spiders yeah which is really exciting yeah but the um other insects have got eyes and antennae and beautiful patterns on the wings and so on and as I said some of them have even got color you know the original structural color and so on so they really are exciting however I need to say most of them are pretty small you need to have a good eyesight or a hand lens and then you need to bring them back and look at them under the microscope Um, but Each one of them is telling a sort of a a new story about the history of life in New Zealand, and sometimes history of life in the Southern Hemisphere, um, or even further afield. So they're of interest to people not just in New Zealand, but but everywhere. In fact, the um, the um, um, Uwe Kalfus, my co-author, who was um, my PhD student and then postdoctoral fellow, is now based in Germany, and he's working on fossil insects from New Zealand from. (laughs) A university in Germany, where they're paying him to do this, because what he's finding is so exciting and new and interesting. And yeah, so what
1: can the site tell us, um, no, internationally, locally about um, climate and
0: you know, how can that be used into the future? Right. Well, that was the other thing that was kind of unexpected. So we got some uh, Marsden funding to drill through the centre of the deposit. So it's kind of shaped like a an ice cream cone, and we wanted to drill in the know the middle and the deepest part of it and to see if we could get down to the volcanic rocks at the bottom and um we um after a lot of preparatory work we did that um so we've got 120 um something 20 gosh i have to look it up um a core that's 183 meters long and 120 odd meters of that is the year by year climate signal from the these very fine um layers um, and you can do measurements on them and work out all sorts of interesting facts about the climate. We can pick up ENSO cycles, you know, the La Niña, El Niño, El Niño um, cycles that we can pick them up in the core, and we can pick up sunspot activity, um, just wow. all sorts of things. Um, but as well as that, there are leaves all the way through the core, and the the leaves are so beautifully preserved that you can um, look at all the cells on the surface and, and measure the stomata and how dense they are. And that gives you a, um, um, a way of looking at you know, past CO2 levels, So you can work out how hot it was, how cold it was, what the CO2 levels were, and and all sorts of things. And so one of the things that we discovered, or one of my PhD students discovered, was that the climate overall was probably about 8 degrees centigrade. This is the mean annual temperature, about 8 degrees centigrade warmer than it is at middle March today. Mm. So much, much warmer, Um, probably no snow, no ice, Um, But then, of course, there were no mountains at that time either. Um, So we can kind of look back in the past and see what the climate was like. And the other thing, we can work out that the CO2 levels were much higher than they are today. But as most people know, the CO2 levels in the atmosphere today are going up and up and up every year. And in another 20 years or so, we might be getting up close to where the climate was at Foldenmar 23 million years ago so it would be quite nice to be as warm as Brisbane um, in Dunedin I
3: wouldn't, <laughs> <but it know.
0: laughs> wouldn't be very good for the rest of the planet because but then the ants would come back well then <laughs> they would too <laughs> they might and the termites yes I hadn't thought of that and yeah probably mosquitoes and all sorts of things yes I hadn't quite thought um, thought of it like that, yes, um, and and we might get rainforest back again too. Instead of you know the dry tussocks that we expect around middle March, we we might have subtropical rainforest because the rain um, it was much wetter back then too. So the climate has changed a huge amount um, over this time period, and but the only way we can kind of know that is by studying sites, exceptional sites like this one at Folden ma and then we can kind of um, look look back in time, and then we can look forward in time and think, hmm, where are we heading, you know, with what humans are doing to the planet now? And, yeah, um, it's kind of, um, it's frightening in a way to see yeah. that looking back, what we're looking at is natural changes. What we're doing now is speeding up, you know, these changes to a degree that the planet has never seen before. So yeah. it's a gigantic um terrifying experiment that we're doing and not a good one and not a good
1: one no right. and this also um sort of also highlights the importance of the site and preserving it and being able to keep researching at it
0: mm-hmm. it is really important because one of the things that scientists know is that you never know what questions people will want to be asking five or ten or twenty years in the future and many of the most important discoveries in science have been made not by nice organized, you know, projects, but serendipity, something that came out of left field that people didn't even think about when they started off. Um, And we've got the core that, you know, the the core that we drilled, um, it's in a refrigerated container down at the university, but it's probably going to deteriorate over time. And we've asked lots, lots of questions of it. We've, you know, done lots of research, but I can imagine that in, 10, 10 years time, people might want to go back and drill the deposit again and look for different kinds of information that might be there. Um, yeah, they'll have a different set of questions. <laughs> they will. yes and and uh, they might be able to redo some of the things we've done and get you know um, get more precise answers too. so so destroying the deposit the way the mining company was going to do was was it was just such a terrible idea. Um, and it's not as if there's another fold in mass somewhere else that you can go and you know um, study it's the only one of its kind there is no other one anywhere on the planet like yes. this one so unique now the
1: next question I was just wanting to ask you because um, you know sort of slightly more personal is that you know, in 2017 you were awarded with the Mackay Hammer from the Geoscience Society so mm-hmm. how did you get into this field of work were you one of these kids who was always fascinated by rocks and geology?
0: <laughs> That's right, yes. Yep. I used to collect shells and rocks and things. Yeah, I grew up in Southland on a farm and I used to spend my holidays at Riverton. So I, had, I still got some of my collections of shells and rocks off the beach and so on. So um, when I was at um, a secondary school, at Gore High School, um, we had a, um, a teacher um, who, when I was about 14 or so, um, had a geology club. And I... I I obviously went along to it and um, got even more fascinated um, by geology and and uh, fossils and minerals and and whatever decided i was going to become a geologist when i was like 14 or so and came to university and basically never left and i've never lost my fascination for understanding the earth and understanding how you know what we see around us today in new zealand got to be that way so i i hope i can interpret the landscape and I know what's happened in the past you know I can look at around Dunedin and see in my mind's eye the volcanoes that you know once you know were erupting here and and, um, produced the mountains that well hills that everybody takes for granted and and um, see what's happened to them through time as well as looking at the you know the, the forests and and so on and understanding you know how they got to be that way so for those listeners out there who've got kids who are just
1: absolutely into fossils and things like that, how can they encourage them um, though, if they're interested in it in, in a career like yours?
0: I think you should go on outdoor activity um, trips whenever you can. Go to the beach, um, go to rivers, um, take them to the Vanished World Trail up in um, um, North Otago and go around go round that because that's designed specifically for encouraging um people to understand the landscape and so on and uh, I would like to see the vanished world extended in um you know to many other sites around new zealand um so ha- get you have to get your hands dirty um and collect things uh, you <laughs> When, when children come to me with a, you know, a something, you know, some crummy bit of rock and say, what is this? I I always take it very seriously and explain to them that that piece of rock is a story and I can help them, you know, work out what the story is, you know, where it came from and how old it is and, and so on. Um, and when students come to university as first-year students, and you you know very quickly which of them are likely to become a geologist because they've got this passionate interest in everything that's going on around them, and they're interested in you know um, time travel back into the past and so on. So yeah, and also geology covers everything um, the 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 natural world, including you know space and 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 so on. So and everything from microscopic up to you know um, the solar system so you know anything that you're interested in can can uh, fit into the field of geology or earth science
1: that's great hey thank you so much Daphne for coming on the show today and sharing your passion because it's clear that you absolutely love what you do and to talk about um, fossil treasures of Mar and uh, wish you all the very best and hopefully
0: getting some access back to the site that's what I'm hoping for too thank you very much
1: Well, that is our show for this month. So thank you for listening in and to my guest, Sataga University Press Publisher Sue Wotton. And um, Daphne Lee, they're talking about fossil treasures of Mars, So very, very relevant right now with the wonderful news that um, the site has been saved. So join us again next month for another hour in that wonderful world of books. But until then, enjoy lots of great reading.